The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O God, whose blessed Son came into the world that he might destroy the works of the devil and make us children of God and heirs of eternal life, grant that having this hope, we may purify ourselves as he is pure, that when he comes again with power and great glory, we may be made like him in his eternal and glorious kingdom where he lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. A reading from Exodus. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezabel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have fitted him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for the setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have anointed him, with him, Olaliah, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to all able men ability that they may that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and all the furnishings of the tent, the table and its utensils and the pure lampstand with all the utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons for their service as priests, and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. The word of the Lord. Let's stand together and read Psalm 149. And this morning, let's read it responsively by whole verse, which means I'll read the first verse, then you read the next verse, and so on. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands. To execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples. To bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron. And altogether to execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. And now glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Can you see it?
Our New Testament reading is from 2 Corinthians. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise you, Lord Christ. You can be seated. Morning. That was a really good good morning. Um, I'm Andine O'Neill, pastor of Worship Arts, and as you're probably aware, we're in a sermon series where we explore the different values of our church. Before I even get to the point of introducing it, I want to tell you a little personal story. My youngest started kindergarten this year, and for the first full month, I was grieving. I understand it's a cause for celebration, less childcare for my part-time work schedule, all our kids can buckle themselves in, get themselves ready for bed. But still, I really was grieving. Grieving with a small G, nothing actually bad happened here. Um, I realized that. But a melancholy was really hanging over me. The chapter of my life as a mother with three tiny children was so precious to me. We had so many adventures together, time in the woods. Baking, crafting, singing, reading, the silly games, the snuggles. I mean, it wasn't all pretty. There were plenty of crazy making while we survived days, too. But we had our three kids in three and a half years. So that meant we were up to our eyeballs in babies, then toddlers, then preschoolers, and then bam, 
they're off and running into school. Um, someone else is now shepherding large portions of their days. The first school day where I wasn't busy working for church and I sat down to have lunch in my own quiet, boring home absolutely wrecked me. Um, it felt like the first of an oncoming crescendo of goodbyes, where my closeness with my children would diminish, and I'll never relive or return to those days. I'll only grasp at those memories. And then, on a Monday morning, I was running in the woods, listening to Les Mis, as one does when one works out. <laughs> I am sure you all do this. I was in the zone humming along, my heart was already in a place of asking all the deep questions, because this story begs you to ask them. What is right? What is just? What is grace? What is love? What is worth fighting for? My heart was primed. And then Fontaine began to sing, sing her parting song. As she's dying, she's imagining being with and saying goodbye to her daughter, Cosette. Here are a few of her lines, and I won't sing them, though I want to. Cosette, it's past your bedtime. You've played the day away, and soon it will be night. Come to me, Cosette, the light is fading. Don't you see the evening star appearing? Come to me and rest against my shoulder. How fast the minutes fly away and every minute colder. But I will sing you lullabies, and I'll wake you in the morning. For God's sake, please stay until I'm sleeping and tell Cosette I love her, and I'll see her when I wake. Bam. I suddenly felt all at once drawn into the mystery of true love. Through my earbuds and into my heart, something reached in and grabbed a hold of me. It thrust my consciousness into a new and greater realm of awareness. I can't explain it any other way. I felt all at once the glorious weight of true love. Through the avenue of a mother to a daughter, but then through that into all human love and the mysterious depth of care that spurs us on toward risk and vulnerability and sacrifice and connection, something so supernatural it actually bolsters my belief in the existence of God because why else would love, this essence of feeling and knowledge and goodness and beauty even exist? In a world of cold chance and survival, this kind of love has no place. Where did this love come from? And then, I'm face to face with the source of all love. It was as though God's love became a solid and I held it in my hand. I felt the pain of Fontaine's real suffering and loss, of real death, but made small somehow because love encompassed it. Love subsumed it. By the way, I'm still running ugly crying <laughs> at this point. But through the beauty of this song, I imagined myself saying goodbye to my children in a much more real and final way. But proclaiming, I'll see you when I wake, and meaning it. This minuscule loss of my present moment, my youngest attending kindergarten, was magnified through imagination, spurred through story and song, and then in a moment, it was remade and reordered. And I saw, somehow I knew, the purpose and point of love was worth all the pain. I sensed the powerful, glorious, tangible realness of God's love, and I felt that the morning would be great indeed. 
I owe a great debt of gratitude to the writers and musicians who wrote, composed, and performed this because God met me in that moment. There's something that can be intrinsically powerful and otherworldly about the arts, and today that's what we're going to talk about. Yes, today we're addressing our value of cultivating beauty and art. And our exact language around this is, as we offer opportunities for people to experience, create, and engage with art, the Lord will empower us as a community of disciples and strengthen our witness to a lost world deeply hungry for both beauty and its ultimate source. This is going to be great. I challenge, not my sermon, I mean talking, I mean talking about this beautiful thing. I, I'm so excited is what I'm saying. I challenge any non-artist types out there that this isn't a niche sermon. I promise this isn't just for artists. I'm not going to tell everyone they need to go home and paint a landscape today, though I wouldn't stop you. I realize the Vikings are on at noon. Um, what the scriptures reveal for us today is for all of us. Our creator God designed, designed that we steward his gifts of beauty and art and our own human creativity with care and extravagance. This is for our good and it's for his glory. We all know God created the world, but have you considered that he didn't need to? He didn't need us. The Godhead, the Trinity has always been and out of their abundance, out of the vibrant and abounding love shared among the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they decided to create. And if all they wanted was for humans to survive, then maybe all we would need is a rock for a seat, some kind of tasteless plant that gives us nutrition, a rectangular plot of land for sleeping. And you know, our world could just be gray. It could be flat, it could be silent. I mean, we don't need color or texture or sound. We might not even really need all of our senses. I mean, not in the same way. We could have survived in a meager, beautyless world. But we see in our account of creation the bountiful variety and exquisite beautiful features of this, our home. Over a formless void, a blank canvas, the spirit of God hovered, and the artist began. The orchid, the olive tree, the lemur, the lion, the constellations, the canyons, the mountain peaks, the prairie plains, the water, the woods, the woods. I love the woods. And what was the idea behind sunrise and sunset? The purples and greens and golds and pinks and orange red wonders of dawn and dusk just this morning was bright pink, if any of you saw it. It's odd humankind for all of history and our food. Have you ever taken a bite of a cold, juicy orange when you're hot, sweaty, and salty? Or maybe when you're chilled, like right now, fresh, warm bread dipped in soup? And the sounds, the sound of a loon or a cricket or a screaming goat Seems God has a sense of humor, too. Or the smell of the sea. Or a lilac. Dallas Willard's definition of beauty is succinct. Beauty is goodness made manifest to our senses. And indeed, we know that God called his creation good. We don't have time to read the whole creation story. It would have taken half my sermon. But here's the spark notes. The light and darkness, good. The waters and sky, good. The land and seas, good. The plant and fruit trees, and fruit and trees, good. The sun and stars and moon, good. The creatures of the sea, good. The creatures of the land, good. And then he created male and female in his own creative image. 
And he called them very good. And if we're created in his image, then it's in us to show his glory and increase the light and vibrancy of our world in that same way. God creates out of nothing, but we're gifted his creation, and we're told to have dominion over it. Not to abuse it or take it for granted, but to bear his image with a loving in-chargeness. To be godlike in our generative and creative vigor as we care for creation. Calling attention to God's glory not only in what he has made, but what in we, following our natural instincts put in us as designed by our creator, in turn create. What we make out of and in response to this creation matters to him. Our homes, our instruments, our soups, our poems, our walking trails, etc., etc. We are to steward these riches, nourishing our souls and expanding our imaginations and making known the beauty of the Lord. But it is complicated, isn't it? God was calling things good, giving us dominion over them, and then humans went ahead and decided they didn't want him to tell them what was good and what wasn't. Even then Adam decided they could call something good, even if God expressly said it was not. They grasped for something that was in fact not designed to be good for them. And as you know, this meant sin and death entered this world of goodness and beauty. And now there's a crude, ugly barrenness where there once was flourishing. And instead of reading outward in our gratitude of, and worship as created image bearers, human awareness has turned inward in selfishness and insecurity. And sin creeps in and desires to dominate our senses and depress our souls. We also know our loving and creative God designed a plan to right these wrongs. And in the person of Jesus, we have an actual historical reality God's love made solid. He is the very substance and beauty of love incarnated. Let's look at our gospel passage today to learn what coming face to face with this Jesus inspires. Our gospel passage for today is the anointing of Jesus. Now, all four gospels record a woman anointing Jesus. Luke's account seems to take place earlier in a different setting with a different woman. It seems that's a separate event. But Matthew, Mark, and John's account all deal with a lot of the same circumstances, if in some places Matthew and Mark are a little more general and John gives a bit more detail. So to set the scene, before this, in a town called Bethany, Jesus had wept. He wept because his friend Lazarus had died. And he loved Lazarus and his sisters, and he felt the weight of death in a world that was designed for abundant life. Jesus came to the place where he had been laid but only after Lazarus had been dead for so long that the stink of death was assumed to emanate out and assault the crowd's senses if the tomb was unsealed. Yet, Jesus ordered the tomb opened and Lazarus to walk out, and out he came, alive. Jesus, the Son of God, can remake and reorder the broken and dead things of this world. There was no stink of death, only the awe of life. That's grand artistry. And this was, as you know, too much for the chief priests and the Pharisees. They schemed and prepared to put Jesus to death. It was the straw that broke the camel's back. Jesus now had to travel under the cover of wilderness, hiding his resurrecting and generative power until it was the right moment. Now, moving ahead, a few days before the Passover, Jesus returned again to Bethany, just two miles from Jerusalem. Everyone there was thrilled with Lazarus' resurrection, and they gave a great dinner for him. We see our friends in their familiar places. 
Jesus in a place of honor, Martha serving, we can assume alongside others, Lazarus reclining at the table, which is interesting because it seems to indicate he was likely a guest and that it wasn't his house, and Mary, Mary is at Jesus' feet. Mary had in her hand a jar of pure nard. This is a perfumed oil made from the root and spike of the nard plant grown in India. I'm to understand, you've probably seen them. There was a beautiful and extreme, this was a beautiful and extremely precious gift. And in response to Jesus' resurrection of her brother and of her seeing and knowing the Lord as the fount of life and love, she breaks it open and pours it over Jesus. Now, in Matthew and Mark, she pours it on his head. These gospel writers tended to emphasize Jesus as the coming king, so the anointing his head makes sense. John, who focused on Jesus' coming death and places great emphasis on his example as a suffering servant, emphasized that Mary anointed his feet. In their culture, even Jewish servants were above the job of tending to a master's feet, it was the job for a non-Jewish slave. Some commentators take these accounts together and see that, hey, Jesus' whole body was anointed. And different gospel authors emphasize different angles of that. That makes sense to me. There was so much ointment. A Roman pound, which is what it says, was about 11.5 ounces. And Mary uses her hair to wipe his feet, perhaps because of the excess a respectable woman did not typically let her hair down in mixed company, but she did not stop or pause to make sure she was keeping decorum. Imagine being there. Maybe you're dipping your bed into the stew. Maybe you're helping to refill the wine. Maybe you're reclining and chatting with Lazarus. What was it like to be dead? <laughs> but then, even... Before you see anything, you smell something. It's wonderful. It's unexpected. It's strong. It's rich. You look up and you notice Mary is anointing Jesus. The scent of her extraordinary and extravagant act filled the room. The din of the dinner chatter dies away to silence. Their senses are full of this exotic scent and their minds are trying to process and categorize what is, what is happening? Before many of them can make up their minds, at least one of the disciples, John tells us Judas, speaks up. Uh, this is crazy. What is she doing here? Why wasn't this sold and given to the poor? This perfume was worth a lot of money. 300 denarii, a laborer was paid one denarii per day. So that's at least a year's worth of wages. So for scale, let's imagine a labor, labor today is paid $10 per hour, eight hours a day, and works 300 days in a year. So I'm skipping weekends and a few other days and being conservative. That means in this perfume's market, oh, in this, <laughs> per, this perfume in today's market, the value would be at least $24,000. $24, at least, and she poured it all out. This was a highly treasured gift, a family heirloom. Judas, especially interested in money, and not inclined, perhaps, to notice the depth of beauty in front of him, judges Mary, 
Essentially, he says, this is not good. Ah, but he has the same problem as Adam and Eve. He has begun discerning what is good and beautiful according to his own desires. Jesus immediately rebukes him. Leave her alone. Mark writes that Jesus says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. Kalos, the Greek word for beautiful, also means good. It's the same. And it's the same word when translated into Hebrew for the good that God proclaims over creation. This was a beautiful and extravagant and good thing. Jesus mentions this anointing has prepared him for death, for burial. An artist, Mako Fujimura, writes, the only possession Christ wore on the cross was the aroma of this perfume that Mary poured on him. Jesus knows that before the week is over, he will hang on the cross and take on all the sin and death and decay of this world. He will absorb it all. Mary responded to her brother's savior and guaranteed that the stink of death would have no final stay. Expensive perfumes were not the norm for funerals. These were meant for celebrations or maybe coronations. Somehow Mary saw what was real and what was important and what was good, even if it was disruptive or impractical. And she helped to tell and spread the story of Jesus even before she fully understood the story herself. Mary exposed and proclaimed the worthiness of the Son of God. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the world, Jesus said, what she has done will be told. And here we are, telling her story. So why does Jesus call this beautiful? Why does Jesus call this good? What others deemed a waste, Jesus calls necessary. Why? We're given the substance of creation to steward. But apart from finding food and shelter and making babies, is there something more that we're called to steward here? Aren't arts and beauty extra things? Not quite necessary for survival. But in this story and throughout all of scripture, we see that God is about more than survival. He is about flourishing. And to flourish, to be really fully alive, to know the meaning of life and lean into it hard, is to see God's character and respond to it in kind. We see in our Old Testament passage today that when it came time for God to make the tabernacle, he didn't say, make a box, make it sturdy, put the tablets in it. He didn't tell Moses, find a guy, get it done. God said, I have called by name Bezalel, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God. This is the first time in all of Scripture, by the way, that we're told the Holy Spirit fills anyone. And I filled him with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, bronze, cutting for stones, carving for wood, and every craft. We see in the psalm that we read today that our worship of God is absolutely not meant to be boring. Our senses are meant to be filled. And our creative faculties use tambourines, lyres, trumpets. One writer said, if it seems strange to you, God being worshipped and danced with bodies sweating and sabers flashing, faces emanated by full-throated song or shout, then maybe you've picked up your idea of artistic glory, not from the Bible, but from somewhere else. Yes, beauty and art on some level is gratuitous. It 
it's extra and that it's a choice. It's extra time, extra money, extra work. It's extra, but we were designed for extra. It's, it is because it is extra that it points to beyond itself. It draws people out of the gray world of survival and into questions of meaning or love or mystery or struggle or hope or pain. And what about the poor? We know from the rest of scripture, we know that a central mission of Jesus was caring for the poor and serving one another. He is not saying that doing an artistic extravagant thing is always better than meeting the needs of your neighbor. Not at all. These things are not exclusive. In fact, they were actually designed to go together. The gospel is a holistic and transformative truth. Theologian Calvin Sierwild says that the new song the Psalms speak about is to be a double-edged artistry, praising God's name and setting things right. Art and beauty should bring joy, if perhaps a troubled joy, that makes the Lord happy to see things set to right. The anointing at Bethany brought to painful light Judas' real character. It was a response that showed Mary's true character as well. It was both painful and beautiful, and it set something to right. Good artistic acts will do something like this. And even if we're not the one making the art, our souls are hungry, our neighbors' souls are hungry to receive such beauty as well. Searwild again, God put art, this vessel of comfort and joy, into our hands to be treated like the expensive perfume that Mary spilled over Jesus' feet. What Judas wanted converted into cash for the poor. What we need to do next is to reflect on what is the most normative artistic perfume today and how we can most redemptively spill it over the body of Christ and pour it like a healing salve upon the many people who are walking the dark streets of this world. We are people who have received the gift of creation and we've been, we've been redeemed by the glorious sacrifice of Christ and we get to respond. And this doesn't mean you have to now make or purchase or go stare at a whole bunch of paintings or poems about the cross. The subject matter of any art piece need not explicitly portray Jesus, by the way, in order to point to the source of beauty. In fact, an artist need not even be a Christian in order to do that. Good art, regardless of the subject or the expressed intent of its human maker, will point honestly to some aspect of this grand story. Any compelling bodies of artwork, or body of artwork, will be honest about both the major and minor themes of the story we're a part of. These are categories theologian Francis Schaeffer used. Minor being the fractured brokenness of our souls, communities, and histories. So it is good, and it is beautiful, to be honest about these things in our creativity. We're actually promised suffering in our world, in our lives, and addressing the pain and sitting in it, proclaiming, this is not the way it was supposed to be, is sometimes the most beautiful and honest thing that we can do. And it prompts the need for wrongs to be made right. It prompts the need for a savior. And of course, the major theme, it situates our pain in its proper place. It reorders it. 
It calls attention to the meaning and the purpose of life. That the Lord is a redeemer, a resurrector, that he's the fount of all goodness and beauty. To receive and reflect back the glory of these great gifts in every variety of creativity and beauty will be to fill the room with the enticing scent of the gospel. And my belief and experience is that when you spend time engaging directly with this kind of good art, painting, sculpture, poetry, film, music, so on, it does something to you. It tunes your senses to experience beauty in the world around you in a new way. Art is a means of grace where we learn to see and hear rightly in God's good creation. But let me quote Schaefer again, who says, no work of art is more important than the Christian's own life. And every Christian is called upon to be an artist in this sense. He may have no overly specific artistic gift, but each man has a gift of creativity in terms of the way he lives his life. How you make and appreciate your breakfast, how you care for a flower bed, how you engage with the substance of culture around you, how you view the world, how you encourage others in their creative work, I could go on. And with the power of resurrection at work in us, we don't need to be stuck turning inward in selfishness and insecurity. We have been freed from that. We could radiate outward in gratitude and worship. Even just your face, your countenance can respond as Mary did. In 2 Corinthians, we see Moses wore a veil because of the fear of God's glory diminishing. Well, scripture tells us we do not have that problem. You can show your shining face for all to see. You've seen the creative glory of God. And because of our sure hope, we can be bold. No more hiding the life-giving power of the gospel. The spirit hovered over the waters and created. The spirit filled Bezalel for the creative work of the tabernacle. And now you... Beholding the glory of God and with the freedom and the power of the Spirit, you can reflect back to him and fill the rooms of the world until the day when all things are made right and new. Amen. Lord, thank you for your presence with us. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your beauty. I pray you just give us opportunities, promptings, inspiration, Lord, to reflect these things back to you and the creative bounty that you've given to us. Amen. Please stand. Respond to God's word read and, read and preached by affirming our faith with Christians throughout the world and throughout history. As we say together the Nicene Creed. We believe.